0: Let's uh, switch gears. Let's go way back to
1: where you were born. I'm a complete British mongrel. Right. So I'm like, my mum's Welsh and my dad's a mixture of Scottish, English and French. All right. Um, I, we do live in Scotland, when we, me and my wife, before we were here, we were living in Edinburgh. All right. Um, but I was born in Manchester. Right. So my mum's side of the family are very much sort of Welsh mining and steel working community very active trade unionists.
0: Um, Were um, they musicians or
1: entertainment? There were quite a few singers, but I don't think anyone played an instrument particularly, but they definitely had that sort of political side. So my great, great uncle, Morgan Morgans, he spent the war locked naked in a cell with a British uniform hanging up saying, when you put this up on, you can go out. And he's like, I will not go out and kill another worker, whether they're German or from wherever. Absolutely not. Um, so there were a lot of sort of social activists mm. on that side. Um, and then my gran and granddad on that side, they were like the first people who'd ever been to university and their families uh, were English teachers, very into poetry, both wrote quite a lot as well. So I guess uh, that they... sort of comes from there. Yes. Um, on my dad's side, my gran was uh, from Huguenot scientists who'd come over to Britain uh, granddad from a market gardening family, and they both became doctors. And Graham started the first ever women's health clinic in Britain, uh, just outside Manchester. And she said, every week, angry husbands would come throwing bricks through the window saying, you can't tell my wife what to do with her body. Um, <laughs> but she was, yeah, I guess a trailblazer as well. Yeah, right. Um, and dad was definitely very, uh, Graham used to say about him coming, her coming home, from her work at the clinic and finding there were no cooking utensils in the house, and dad, as a 14 year old, saying, uh, Yeah, I took them down to the women's refuge because they need them more than us. Wow. And so, humanitarian. <laughs> <gonna tear> <laughs> yeah, but a little bit headstrong always, <laughs> which I think came across from that story too. Right. Yeah. So, and I, I kind of grew up in a commune in Hebden Bridge. Hmm. Um, Dad, Dad trained as a doctor, but he hated the patriarchal system. He never oh. actually worked, didn't practice. Uh, he worked on building sites. Mum was making an anthology of feminist verse for Penguin books and working as a cleaner. So they kind of, from their parents having come from very working class backgrounds to being doctors and teachers, they almost kind of stepped back to try to become more working class. I don't think it was a deliberate thing, but... um. <laughs> I mean, it was to the point where I had a Mahika and I was being an artist, lots of piercings, running an alternative theatre company. Like, oh, that was so creative. Right. And my brother was the complete rebel who got a first in business studies. Always had short hair, went and joined an investment bank, and voted conservative. Cheers, <laughs> um, <laughs> <geez, I mean. laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, from that back, yeah, I ended up working a lot of theatre, wrote a lot of plays. Uh, won the British Young Playwright of the Year in the yeah, early right. 20s and a few big national poetry competitions, had a Beautiful. collection of poetry published, and I was like, this is it. I am an artist.
0: Were you I a shy guy? I would say not. Um but Were not you a shy guy? No? <laughs>
1: uh, I certainly had a lot of insecurities, right. but I tended to get over them by talking a lot. I that was quite out, good yeah. at talking my way out of maybe being a little bit too loud in the spotlight, having someone trying to knock you down and being, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right about my mum. It's so nice of you that you've been doing that with her because I think she's been lonely lately <gasps> rather than taking as It was meant, uh- <laughs> right. right. Right.
0: But, uh, yeah, where does the music come into it? I mean, the theatre, obviously, but mm. like, where does music come into this? Just playing in bands, I always, yeah.
1: since I was sort of 13 or younger. So combining the, the theatre with the... Yeah, a lot of the theatre was musical theatre. Yeah. Not like musicals, but quite political stuff. We worked a lot with people who'd just come out of prison, or who were just coming off heroin. Mm-hmm. We managed to get a sort of contract to deal with people who were living in halfway houses. as so they were called really trying to get over the addiction, get back into society. And so most of the cast were ah, these absolutely brilliant, pretty rough Manchester guys mainly, but who were actually way more dedicated than some of the drama school wow. <laughs> people I'd got helping me, who were just determined to change their lives around. Yeah. they like been on heroin since an early age, they'd been, had a couple of years in prison. What a great idea. And just saw this as a completely different thing. We built all the plays up on improvisations first. Then we toured, did sort of Stockport Theatre Festival, Buxton, Edinburgh. Yeah, that was, that was a great few years. It was um, quite hairy sometimes.
0: Did it help them?
1: I think so. I'm only in touch with two of them still, but neither of them got back on heroin at all. Oh, that's fair. Uh One of them has had a very up and down life mm. with mental health issues still. It's is tough. Uh, yeah, it is tough. Mm. Andy Houlihan was just this force of nature tiny guy who would do a couple of lines of whiz and two cans of special brew before he came in to rehearse because it. it keeps me straight Simon. It keeps me off the smack <laughs> and I remember him taking me out to his local pub in Withenshaw and it's the first time he'd gone there since he'd stopped dealing heroin and three or four guys like kind of surrounded him like yeah you're giving a bad reputation you need to start dealing again all the people are giving up and and getting really aggressive, and I was a middle-class, wimpy, drama kid who played in the band, I was terrified. Yeah. And it was obviously about to get really nasty, and Andy was like, come here, come here, mate, come here. And he bit one of these guys' ears off. He just grabbed him, bit his ear off, grabbed me by the neck, went, run, Simon! And we legged it out of this (coughs) pub, and I don't think I've been in with insurance since. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I guess you don't see that every day. Yeah. (laughs) So so that was a bit of my background anyway. We had a little film company for a while. Oh, yeah. Did a series of films with Scottish poets uh, for the BBC, like taking fairly famous living Scottish poets, getting them to choose a poem, usually with some sort of narrative structure. And me and my company, we'd turn it into a little film while they read the poem over it. So jail guitar doors, which was... Billy Bragg and Joe Strummer's yeah, right. project trying to get people in prison, teach them to play guitars. Yeah. Right. I mean, absolutely brilliant. They, they just went in with shed loads of guitars into what were the worst prisons in Britain, gave every inmate a guitar, and suddenly the violin stopped. <laughs> Taught them how to play three chords, a few ideas about writing songs. Yeah. You suddenly got all these guys sitting for 23 hours a day in a cell who suddenly had something to do. Instrument. Violence between inmates stopped. That's so Violence cool. between inmates and guards stopped. Such a um, great idea. And yeah, it was never taken up by the guard, but they made a great documentary about it. And yeah. I mean, my company, we we just worked with a couple of the guys who were coming out of prison and did videos for them hmm. so they could
0: like try and make it in pop and music. Um, so I was gonna say before, like you talked about being Political in your theatre? Is it theatre work? In life, I In life! I'm, in life. <laughs> I'm just a yeah. ornery agitator who
1: <laughs> likes to disagree.
0: But, but the thing is, uh, have an opinion, but uh, like people are sitting mm. on the fence, you can go yay
1: And as you get older, you can also see other people's opinions better. And yes. I feel I am much less polarised now. Mm. In fact, I was called transphobic last week and i i would say it's quite tough to get more left-wing and believing that everyone should be exactly who they want to be than i am hmm. as as i think comes across in a lot of the songs
0: yeah is there any backlash from
1: that like- well yeah you see i feel i feel a lot of people on the left are very earnest hmm. billy bragg was very earnest like the, the guys i was working with were really funny they're like, ah, you shouldn't be leaving your wallet on the table, Or fuck, be having that as soon as you go to the bar. And Billy's like, "All right, guys, I, I don't think you should be uh, encouraging that sort of joke because I think it'll give people wrong pressure." <laughs> yeah.
0: Right.
1: Um, and I think there's a lot of that earnestness, and I am an absolute piss taker, which does <laughs> get me in trouble with the more woke. <laughs> yes. As well as with with the more right. I mean, we were asked to play on a TV show in a. Shanghai recently, it was meant to be a celebration of diversity of the foreign, oh foreign culture dear. Oh dear. that is flourishing <laughs> in Shanghai under the auspices of <laughs> um, the wonderful Chinese government who are very, very liberal and open and welcoming. And we kind of went, oh, do we want to look like stooges for the government and do this? You know, it's, uh, And we thought, well, if we, if we get to choose the songs we're playing... We'll obviously not put the exact same lyrics into the senses that we have to say what we're playing. <laughs> then maybe we can still kind of slightly advocate for a little bit of social justice and uh, a little bit more loose listen attitudes to people. Yeah. So, so it was a straight—it was like a little outdoor festival that was being filmed with lots of Korean kids doing dancing and Japanese. And then we come on there and we did a gay love song from <laughs> Batman to Robin. <laughs> uh, we did "Hey Snow White, which is a, a very... Oh, I've got a great quote about it. It's a feminist fairy tale princess sticking her Doc Martens into patriarchal narrative expectations. That's what an emerging indie band said about it. But yeah, it's a pretty uh, <laughs> feminist love song. And Shoot the Poets, which we wrote for Penn International, yeah, right. which is a company that fights to get writers and journalists out of prison so it's very much about stopping censorship, um, I and mean, we haven't been arrested or kicked out of the country yet.
0: Yes. So, why China then? I've just never been here. So you went to university, or did you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you went to university. And...
1: Yeah, I, I. People don't actually believe this, but I was actually a very good springboard diver when I was a kid. I was a British champion. Yeah. Right. And uh, they look at my more rotund form now, see me much more as a an artist than a sportsman, <laughs> right. which is fair enough to say. Yeah. But well, yeah, I, so I, I had a, a diving scholarship to NC State in America, right. so I did two years there. Jumped on a broken bottle, cut all the ligaments oh, in my foot at an outdoor party. Came back, did drama in Manchester. Uh, actually, I started doing fine art first and then, yeah, switched to drama in Manchester
0: all, all um, through this time writing writing music with bands yeah, and, yeah yeah,
1: particularly once I was back in Manchester I, I mm. got very into it we were in a few bands mm. we played with a lot of the sort of indie bands at the time that got labels and we were just so sure we were better than them we were about to be signed and we no. never said anything off we were just like all these guys are getting signed they're gonna they're gonna find us
0: yeah and
1: maybe it's good that they didn't because to be <laughs> honest I still makes with some of these guys and um, you know they dropped out of uni because they got a record signed putting a record right. label they've spent 20 years touring having had one hit record but then still knowing they're making good music they've they're nearly all been married and divorced several times mm. they're doing endless nights on the road you go into a club now to play in Britain and um, we went saw someone makes a band called Haven who had like two top ten hits back in the day, in like the 90s, and they were like, oh guys, it's great to see you, they virtually stopped the show,
0: Yeah,
1: right. a few of us they actually knew came, and they just said, it's shite now, you get to the end of the night, you don't even get to meet the people who've paid to see you, because they're all ushered out of the club as you're packing your kit away, so that they can recharge for people to come in for a dance night. And they were just saying how miserable it is being a full-time yeah. musician. And you've still got that dream. And you haven't really got anything to fall back on. So I think I was very lucky made being a rent complete rent. failure <laughs> as a playwright. i had 14 plays put on. It wasn't such a complete failure, but <laughs> never made a living. Yeah. A few collections of poetry out. Uh, God, about at least 15, 20 albums. I don't know. But actually, I, yeah, I was enough of a failure and all of those things that I ended up as a teacher, which I actually like. I teach film and art. There you go. Oh, that's great. I still get paid to paint and run around with a camera.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and I'm not touring 300 days of the year. I, I bugger off to other cities at the weekend. And should I tell you about some of the people on the album? So as I said, I was trying to find people who weren't just white europeans yeah and one of the first ones i found was pandita Ramabai, who actually died 100 years ago but she's this brilliant women's rights indian woman complete activist her dad ran a school so she was very educated when most women weren't in india mm-hmm. and she wrote hundreds of letters to queen victoria saying look we're women india is part of the british empire at the moment come on, pull your finger out, Mm. do something to help women here. She was invited over to Britain. She actually met Queen Victoria. Wow. She converted from Hindu to Christianity because she was like, right, Hinduism is so fixed in your caste and so sexist. And she was a little disappointed that Christianity turned out to be fairly (laughs) sexist as well. But her opinion at the time was it was going to be the way forward, move back to India and set up schools which are still running there are still schools being run in her name one of the first great female educationists in that part of the world so the song we've got about her is kind of about her with all of Malala Yousafzai's words who of course is the um, Afghani girl who insisted on going to school even after the Taliban had taken over and said no girls allowed to go in and her and a friend the school bus was shot and the two of them were stopped and the two of them were shot in the head for daring at the age of six or so to still want to go to school and be educated. And there was enough of a outcry that money was raised. She was flown to Birmingham, where she was operated on in Britain Hospital, and has gone on to be an amazing advocate for, for education, and mm. particularly for girls' education. Um, so I immediately broke some of my rules about the album that it had to be centenaries, because she's actually That's awesome. a quarter of a century old <laughs> she was 25 right um, but her book I Am Malala is so I, it's one of my favourite songs on the album because basically I didn't write it I was just like jotting notes while reading her biography yeah. and they're such great words that I, like, oh, I can just kind of mess them about a bit and make them rhyme as a song it's a, it's a, books show injustice in a way that stays with you and makes you feel a need to do something about it I thought that's exactly what Thanks. we were saying about sapere, sapere about seizing knowledge and reason and understanding using education to move yourself forward
0: powerful Very yeah true.
1: so I think she's fabulous uh, Crip Camp is one of my favourites that's another one that's Judy Homan, who is the, the great American civil rights advocate right. for disabled rights uh I, and I yeah I was saying about my dad he actually ended up working in a company for disabled rights he trained as the a doctor then became a joiner worked on a lot of building sites and he ended up linking these things by going to people's houses with serious disabilities and converting the houses so they could actually live at home and didn't have to be in institutional care mm. and set up a very political business about trying to change government laws and this is exactly what Judy Hyman was doing in America. She trained as a teacher, and then uh, the state refused to let her work because they said she was a fire risk because she was in a wheelchair. <laughs> so she took the New York- Common uh, sense, uh, but, isn't it? Yeah. Jeez. But she took them to court to like fight this. Hmm. And from there went on, because the, the Bill of Rights was already in play at this time. Hmm. And there was a section 504 which was written that Nixon was like, disabled rights, yeah, we don't need that. Chuck that bit out. So she was trying to get this reinstated. And then the next government, Carter and Caifano as well, they completely blocked it. This is too expensive. Mm. This can't happen. And this was all going on during the Vietnam War. And it just seemed to be such an amazing moment that I tried to pull it all into the song. Because on one side you've got Ho Chi Minh, who was a teacher, who was desperately wanting to link with America, who fought with America in the Second World War. Obviously Napoleon III had invaded Vietnam, taken it over in the 1850s, Mm. kept it as part of Indochina, French ruled. But the Japanese had gone in, taken it over completely. Ho Chi Minh and his communist uprising group, They fought the Japanese out. They worked with America. He used all of the words of the US Declaration of Independence when he was declaring independence for Vietnam, saying we are all free citizens under one God Mm. with equal rights. And then Charles de Gaulle invaded France, and America stepped back and went, oh, no, we're scared of communism. So this was going on at the time. In fact, there's some lines in the song... When Carter said, we can't afford to help. We've got bombs to buy. Vietnamese peasants, we must blow to the sky. Mm. And we knew, like those peasants, the world wanted us silent or dead. So she was saying she could, like, was really feeling for the other groups who were disadvantaged around the world. Mm. And sure enough, when they actually went and took over the government buildings, all of these guys in wheelchair with serious uh, health issues, And the police blockaded the streets and tried to stop them getting any medicine or anything. And how long did they, it's still the longest that any group in America has managed to occupy government buildings for. And she took all of her mates and they flew out to the White House as well. So you've got different parts being blockaded by disabled people. The Black Panthers started coming in, bringing them breakfasts, bringing yeah. them the medicines they needed. Yeah, right. And they were saying, like, you know, this isn't your war. And they're like, yes, it is. You want to make the world a better place? Yeah. So do we. It's the same war. Gay rights groups were coming, demonstrating up And I feel that was a, a wonderful moment for crystallising civil rights movements, certainly in America, but even around the world, where people could make links and see, no, if one group is being crapped on, we all are. You can't say, oh, don't care about the gays, don't care about the cripples. It's all one movement to try to get quality for everyone. There's a song Sid Charisse, who was uh, the first dancer to in, in uh, ensure a body part. So she insured her legs for, well, the song's called Million Dollar Legs. It's actually uh, two million. Right. She insured her legs for a million for each leg. <laughs>
0: Where
1: was this? Where was she from? She yeah, she was American. American she was yeah. uh, danced with Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire. Oh. She's uh, in singing, singing in the rain. Um, but she she was very very Republican, and Richard Nixon absolutely adored her. I'm uh, sure he did. <laughs> yes, my Republican dove, he called her. Oh. I tried to get on TV campaigns for them. Oh.
0: So. <laughs> Out of all them. Do you have one that you just want to keep going back to all the time? Yeah, the mention. Well, I mean,
1: Judy Hyman, I have huge respect for. And sadly, she died last, last month. I, I sent her oh. the song. I managed to get her personal email. I sent her the song on her birthday uh, towards the end of last year. Wow. And I thought, oh, well, maybe she... And I really hope she, she listened to it. Mm. And then I found out actually she'd been ill for months and months. Mm. And, and last month she died. So I don't know if she ever heard the song. I feel she did she idea. definitely got it and so did her organisation so I really hope someone played it to her yeah and I, I, I love Gil Scott Heron as a musician um, we had the same publisher briefly uh, Gate Books in Edinburgh mm. published a lot of his work and I found out his dad was the first uh, black footballer for Celtic in the Scottish lead, Yeah, right. Glasgow Club. Uh, and he, it would have been his centenary. Ah. So he was, that was a really interesting one to find out about. And Why
0: don't we know about that? I mean, you know about the baseball with Jackie Robertson. Uh, yeah. Uh, but why, why don't we know about football? Is it yeah, football? It is football, yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, uh, and he was an interesting, he was a massive all-round sportsman. He was Jamaican. He'd been the national team for boxing. While in Glasgow, he also played in the local cricket teams that was all of them. Um, He'd had an affair with Bobby Scott, a singer in Chicago, who was Gil Scott Heron, his son's mum, who never really knew his dad because he then got given this contract to play in Britain, in Glasgow, and left. Um, But he was also a published poet. So obviously that sort of lyricism that uh, Gil Scott Heron with the revolution will not be televised... And such classics that did did come from him. Uh, Imperfect person, wonderful boxer, footballer, cricketer, runner, and a pretty absent shite father. But interesting character.
0: Very cool. I want to talk about more about China. Mm. Like like your decisions for China. You said you haven't been there before, but what were your first initial reactions to being here? And You've obviously been here for a long time now. Or have you moved to other places?
1: Um, no, we've been here 10 years or so. 10 years. The band's been here nearly 10 years. Yeah.
0: Um, you come to China. Uh, did you leave the band? Or... Well, I left
1: a band in Edinburgh. Yeah. It was called Torpedo
0: Boy. And how was that going? Did they have records? It was Yeah, for? yeah. We,
1: we were on a, a little label called Habibi Records. Hmm. We were... Too big size-wise and not big enough sales-wise. <laughs> I sort of come back from South America and go, oh my God, we have to have a trumpet and a trombone and a full percussion section. And so there was, at the biggest, I think there were 12 of us, but there was always at least eight of us. Um, and I think we sounded amazing. But uh, <laughs> we got, yeah, brilliant Brazilian trumpet player, mm. the tallest... Guy you've ever seen, the Scottish bassist who was like seven foot tall, um, and we were a very interesting ragbag <laughs> collective of every colour and every different size, uh, and so yeah, yeah, we we were playing a lot in Edinburgh, around there, in Glasgow, and a bit out to Manchester and things, um, and then I had kids, and. After one child we realised we needed to move out of our kind of one bedroom flat we were in. I was working as a teacher, uh, my wife had just finished her masters, and i just started working mainly as a translator in a commodities trading company. Oh yeah. As I said she's Serbian and speaks lots of languages far too well. <laughs> and it took us a long time to have the first child, so we bought a bigger flat. That we couldn't really afford. And as soon as we'd signed all the contracts, realised Yana was pregnant again and went, hang around. Ooh, when you're on maternity leave, we actually can't pay this mortgage. <laughs> we thought it took so long for Bella to pop up yeah. that we were absolutely safe. But... Yeah. And that got us back into international teaching. Like I said, we'd we lived in Peru and I lived in Eastern Europe quite a lot. And then and we were like, okay international jobs they give you housing mm. we'd already been in Egypt during the second Gulf War wow. which was a really interesting time to be there wow. Yana had worked for the UN then maybe for UNHCR yeah that was a really interesting time because all the world were in Cairo because it was the closest safe place to Iraq basically yeah. So, and there are not that many bars because it's obviously a Muslim country mm-hmm. there's like a couple of really good rooftop and cellar ones and a few old British ones. But it's kind of a handful for such a big city. Hmm. And everywhere we went out, everyone we met, it's like, oh, you look familiar. Oh, you're ITV's main reporter. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're Russia's top surgeon for field injuries. Okay, yeah. I just felt so insignificant. Right. To everyone I met. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but we loved it. So we got offered a job at, at the British School in Cairo. British International School of Cairo, moved over there with a free house included, mm. rented our place in Edinburgh, which we've never lived in. Right. <laughs> so that's been rented ever <laughs> right. since. <laughs> yeah, right. And after a couple of years there, I, and got there in the middle of the uh, Arab Spring and the huge uprisings to get rid of Mubarak uh, with all the army on the streets. That's probably why they gave me a job there. No one else <laughs> wants and so in the second year, Yanada already had her son Max in Egypt on the banks of the Nile. He was actually in a hospital overlooking the Nile wow. outside. <laughs> but her company was like, we can't have the electricity being cut, the internet being cut for like eight hours at a time. Mm-hmm. With this trading, you could lose us a million pounds by being offline that long. So her and the kids moved back to Britain. By this time, I realized, even though these Egyptian kids are a little bit spoiled that I'm teaching and difficult, I don't want to go back and teach in Scotland. <laughs> um, and we had a conversation. Where would we like to live? And we decided we'd we'd worked in Africa and quite a lot in Eastern Europe and around Europe, and in Peru, um, and we'd not lived in Asia at all. So we looked at where Yana could get a job as a translator and commodities trader
0: hmm.
1: and that's how we ended up whittling it down to either Singapore or Shanghai and she's like right I'm not bothered about going but if you get a good job in either of those cities then we'll move if you don't bite the bullet come back and get beaten up by all these Scottish kids and go to school. <laughs> uh, and we did so we actually worked for the, the Singaporean school in Shanghai so right. it's a bit of a mix of the two <laughs>
0: there you go and every person that I interview that's been here for a while now says that the, the music scene here, like maybe 10, that time when you, you come, it was like, even the city was like the wild west. Yeah, it was
1: a lot more, a lot wilder. There was definitely
0: yeah.
1: a lot more drugs
0: and things around.
1: Right. It, it was, yeah, felt a lot less controlled.
0: So no phones maybe you no know that's oh maybe at that stage but I mean mobiles but none of these apps
1: like DD Right so you yeah taxi, you know you just had to wait for hours on the streets with hordes of people pushing past you to try and wave taxis down you couldn't get away with speaking no chinese Yes you had to order all your food and taxis and things but I mean my level didn't get much beyond that right, I have to say yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was a great... We actually made money playing as well. Like I said, we toured Japan. Right. We recorded the first, well, that set of ten albums, all with money we made from just playing a couple of times a week in different clubs. Mm. There seemed to be a lot more bars that would have bands on. I think the law existed that you were meant to pay a tax if you had a band on, Mm. but it was never enforced. So I, I don't think it was a new law that suddenly if you're playing somewhere in the charge you have to pay i don't know, i think 160 dollars equivalent of as a tax but that kind of takes all the profits away
0: yeah
1: so it, yeah it was it was great fun it was a great time for me and the music scene was really welcoming we played the 10th anniversary of some punk club out in Jujiao and the little water towns on the outside mm. with a load of the local bands and within a week we'd got like Eight gigs. They're like, come and play with us. Come and play with us. Uh, Roundeye, yes. you know, probably the biggest expat band here. the yes. longest. Like Chachi was like, awesome. Get on stage with us and just jam on the sax. Uh, <laughs> I was like, sure. <laughs> I wasn't sure I wasn't going to mess it up. Yeah. But, so how do you know? <laughs> and I felt in Manchester or Edinburgh or Glasgow, it's a much much slower rise to playing the kind of bigger clubs. It takes years to get that recognition. Yes. Whereas here, it felt very quick to be playing really yeah. nice venues. They were, they were screaming
0: cool. it out for the, yeah. for the music.
1: <laughs> yeah, and yeah, there was no one really playing anything like what we were playing. Yeah. And still isn't. And maybe that's because no one wants to
0: hear it. <laughs> <laughs> but that's so good. But It's good in a way that they haven't heard this sort of music. So when they do hear it, they're just like... I don't know about you, but I've noticed that they respect musicians more here in China. Maybe I, it's, I, it's I, hard.
1: On the, on the flip side, yeah. there is very much a glass ceiling. And if you're an expat band singing in English, you know, you, you can get to the bigger venues quite quickly. Yes, But I think if we'd been playing in Britain with this, line, this band and touring, it would have taken longer. But I think we'd have a much, 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 much bigger following now and be doing a lot more touring around Europe and selling out places whereas here you do, you kind of reach that level and there's one or two bands who have gone beyond it but it's in fact Shanghai Chutian I think are the only band I know who actually are selling out some of the bigger arenas right the way that Chinese language bands are and they're almost entirely instrumental you know it's, it's fabulous prog rock yeah right. building stuff a little bit like Mogwai mixed mm. with Roy Scop um they're a fabulous band, mm. um, but I think maybe that's partly how they've done it. And by working very hard and touring a yeah. lot.
0: Uh, was it easy for you to start the whole Chokers here in China? But...
1: Yeah, I just fell into it. Like I said, the, the guy Jarrett, the drummer I met, we'd got yeah. kids of the same age, we lived in the same area, we started meeting for beers, and he's like, I was outside playing sax at one point, point." he's like, oh, play sax. And, my bassist lead singer's just left. Do you want to come and jam with us? Yeah. So I jammed with him and their guitarist, and I bought my electric guitar. I knew they were a kind of thrash rock band. And he's like, no, I wanted you to bring the sax. So we kind of just started jamming. We recorded lots of little bits we were doing. I turned them into songs, and that was it. That that was Hot Choke. The first album was nearly all built on little riffs we'd just jammed over three months, sitting in a little basement, basically.
0: Yeah. I read on WeChat that it was just 6th or 7th album that you've released. And then this is also our 6th or 7th uh, lineup change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I and mean, you were asking what's
1: the pl- <laughs> plans now? Well, mm-hmm. there's Shanghai Calling Festival, that would be great. And we've got a couple more gigs before then. And then I'm going back to England for the summer to see the family I'm trying to make sure my kids feel they've got a real base there yeah. where, where my mum is. And actually last year, we went back halfway through the lockdown, sort of end of April. And our kids went to the local school I'd gone to as a kid. Mm-hmm. They like let them in straight away so they had the whole last term there. We came back in July and this was when all oh, the prices were ridiculously expensive. There were no direct flights from Britain So we had to go and wait two days in Amsterdam, do two COVID tests on each day before allowed to go on. Fly to Belgium, do two COVID tests there, waiting for the flight, in the line for the flight, where the hell is the last result? And my son had got COVID. So we lost tens of thousands (laughs) and came back to Britain. But again, it took so long to get the documents again, because our work visas expired, that my kids had the first term of, of this school year as well in the schools in Britain. So I feel they've fact it was kind of a blessing in disguise. They've had quite a lot, they've got a really good group of school, of mates there now. It's a very tiny village outside Manchester, so there's not many kids there. They know everyone. And I think that's the fear of of us as international teachers, that your kids are going to have no base and are going to feel very rootless. because. Even if we lived in Shanghai forever, the kids they're at international school with yes. are all going to move on and travel somewhere else.
0: Yeah, right. What are you most proud of?
1: Yeah, the kids. Yeah. Absolutely. I, In fact, the last collection of poetry that I ended up talking about in Hong Kong because I couldn't mention the gig yeah. <laughs> is all about the journey of us. I and mean, we were married quite a long time just having fun. Because like I said, we've got married in our 20s. And, but like, yeah, we've got plenty of time. But when we decided to have kids, it took a long time. We did IVF, we did loads of tests. And I was kind of writing at the time. And eventually I collected all this together into a collection. There was having Max during the revolution in Egypt. That was, there was a lot of poems about that, comparing the birth of, or what we hoped was going to be birth of democracy there with the birth of of Max. But it's been a fabulous, fabulous journey. They're like ten and twelve now, mm. and have made me laugh so much. <laughs> I have such fun, and are doing great. Bella played her co- first concert. My daughter last week. Come on, she played a uh, creep, ah, uh, a slightly cleaned up version, right. yeah. radio version. <laughs> yeah, and my son's doing these amazing flips. He's really he's got the springboard diving gene. Right. Uh, so he was he was just sending me some videos. Yeah, so so it is. I mean, I'm I'm really happy about all the music and things. I think the current lineup of Hog Choke is the best it's ever been. And I'm really sad we've just lost our drummer. And the bassist, who is currently in Beijing, getting married. To the most fabulous Nigerian woman who's just finished a doctorate here. And who I made to sing on some of these songs. Come on. I, th- I think I mentioned about often more woke people being a little bit too earnest and so a lot of these songs are from the point of view of a woman so she
0: she sung four or five songs isn't it?
1: she well between her and Tina Turner tricks they did four songs right that were specifically from a woman's perspective right or some uh The bassist was going, You can't really sing lots of Julius Nyeri's as a black freedom fighter fighting the British. (laughs) As a, and I, you know, I was like, Well, I thought people would love it if I blacked up, if I went blackface and put a dress on and just performed like that, and people would realize I'm really empathizing with people of different races and different genders, and the whole band like. You are, you are. Are you joking? I, oh God, I don't know if you're joking. You might actually do that. And think it's all right. Oh. So I don't like, no, It's okay. But, but, Tom, do you think your girlfriend would sing a few songs for us? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. So they're moving to Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. So we lose kind of half the band over the summer. But like I said, we've got a, a great new drummer, yeah. who I'll be practicing a bit more with this week. Come on. And a couple of people lined up for bass, maybe. I'll, I'll not jinx it by saying who, but there are people in other bands at the moment where members of the bands are leaving. Best piece of advice you've ever been given? I was asked what, what advice would I give to a younger me? Oh! Which is a very similar one. Yeah. And, and definitely, this is not advice that you could give to a 21 or 20 year old these days, but to my 20 year old self, I wish someone said, "Like girls actually like sex as well." You you probably can ask people, and probably if someone's come back with you, they're probably quite like you. And you know, as, as a young man, you always feel, "Oh, guys yeah, yeah. want to say," and girls don't want it at all. And I'm too scared to ask and push. Um, and when I was working as an artist as well, when actually nearly all the people I did say, "Can I paint you naked?" Mm. were like, "Yeah, sure." I said, oh, I wish I'd asked a few more. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Social medias, where can we find you for our Chinese listeners and for our Australian listeners as well? The last few albums are all on Spotify. they can Spotify. listen to your playlist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all, all your general Spotify,
1: Apple Music, just iTunes. Just Hog Choker. All of those, just Hog Choker. I think for the Bandcamp and SoundCloud, you have to type Hog Choker Band. Um, oh, right. A hog choker yeah, yeah. You know I was saying About getting some of my like Childhood heroes like big youth um, Playing with us On the album before this one And They were really into it These great Jamaican guys And then there was a long pause We've been sending music back and forth And I was like what's going on They were like hey we, we just realised Hog choker we're Rastas For us the pig is a filthy animal we cannot be in a band named oh, after swine. Yeah. And I was like, no, it's a fish. It, it really is. It's a People here think it's some sort of perverted sex act. And I like that. You know, I like to keep the idea going. It's actually a fish that our drummer, who had a very poor relationship with his dad, he, they travelled a lot around the world and he always felt distant, he said his best memory was on Nags Head Beach in North Carolina, Fishing with his dad and they caught this really ugly flat fish and his dad said that's a hog choker. <laughs>
0: right. There and you he go. thought
1: that must be the toughest fish ever, if it can choke a hog. <laughs> and he thought it was a great name for a band. So I sent them back all these pictures of this fish and the little story. So look, there's a band logo. You see it's a fish, it's nothing to do with pigs. i waited a few days and then they sent me their tracks back with one line just said a fish good.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: but I, I mean last summer w- was great I did a, some solo shows I, like I said we were stuck for longer than we planned yes. because of Covid ended up meeting this guy who used to be the singer of this band called Nizlopi, mm. which had one massive hit called the JCB song about me and my dad in a JCB which is a really cute Christmas number one all over Europe mm. and Inspired Ed Sheeran, they were Ed Sheeran's favorite band ever. Mm. He was like a teenager, and he kind of did work experience with them and came and tuned the guitars for them on the tour. And and he's actually said, "This is these are the guys that got me into making music." Right. For which some people might thank them, and some people <laughs> might not. But uh, <laughs> but he was yes. doing a solo tour, so I joined him for for some of the tour. Oh. That was really nice last summer. So I'm hoping we'll have something like that with me and the violinist ah, uh, really cool and then it's back here last couple of shows for this album and then we've already got lots of ideas for the new album so we're once we've got the new lineup we've actually recorded a couple of already demo tracks getting ready fantastic uh, that's so creative it's uh it's actually all based around superheroes there's right. captain uk who's this plump middle-aged superhero who keeps selling off all of his superpowers. Ah. Uh, There's the Batman's love song to Robin about how much he loves him. Ah, So the truth comes out. Absolutely. There's Robin singing to Batman. It's called I Want to Drive the Batmobile. And it's all like, why am I dressed up like a fucking Christmas tree? You want me to look like a masturbatory gay icon? Why haven't I got a cool name? You're there in the black and... And, of course, the answer is in the next song, which I just mentioned. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, that's the superhero album. (laughs)
0: That would be out in a year or so, I guess. Come on. Yeah, that's fantastic. All right. We're down to the last part where I just asked you a couple of questions and you just give me your top two or three favorite as of today. Number one, who are your top two or three favorite bands of all time? Camper Van Beethoven are very
1: high because they were so influential to me in just the vast array of music. Yes. And the same with Mr. Bungle. Culture Clash. Mm. Oh, God, what are they called? Culture Shock. It's K-U-L-T-U-R-E for the culture anyway. Culture Shock. And they're a all East European uh, immigrants. They're based in America. But they play amazing klezmer, a bit like Gogol Bordello, but even punker and crazier with the violins and clarinets and everything just going. Great songs called things like uh, God is Busy, May I Help You? (laughs) So, yeah, that would be my top three bands at the moment. What was the first album you ever bought? I think it was. Boomtown Rats. Mm. Yeah, whichever one I don't
0: like Mondays on.
1: Oh, yeah. Tonic for the Troops or Fine Art of Surfacing. I'm pretty sure that was the first one. And
0: what was the last album you
1: bought? It, it will almost certainly have been one of, a Shanghai band if I actually paid for it. Right. Um, it be like Parachutes on Fire I bought last yeah. year and the um, Banjax
0: album. Uh, You've been in the Shanghai Music scene for a while. Two or three of your favorites. Okay, Hey Lily, absolutely love.
1: They're really great. Uh, Rolling Bowling, who are kind of big rockabilly uh, Beijing band. Played them a few times. I actually played sax for them last time they were Uh in Shanghai, and I was so bad. They came to the rehearsal like with like I thought seven or eight tracks really down well. They were like. why don't you just play these three and uh, yeah, we'll see about it. I, I think maybe our guy's going to come over as well, <laughs> but it was still great to be, you know, be on stage do a few songs with them. <laughs> That's cool. Your top two or three favorite books. Ooh, I'm currently reading John Burnett, who is a maybe American lawyer, but who's lived in Thailand most of his life. And he does these great uh, Thai detective novels about Sanjap Keep, who is a Thai policeman whose mother was a prostitute and whose father was, well, you don't know at the start of them, but a Westerner. And he's grown up in a sort of mixed Western and Thai culture and been seen as very kind of low caste. I know Mm. caste isn't really a Thai, but... Um, and they're great, gripping stories, but I found them so interesting. All about Buddhism and Thai culture. Yeah, right. And the character keeps on addressing you as a reader and being so farang. You, from your Western capitalist there, you cannot understand that some people might do things that are not about earning more money. But here in Thailand, this is why this happens. And he just goes off in these little monologues that I find really funny and very uh, So yeah, that's John Burnett. Bangkok 8 is the first one, and Bangkok 2. They're great. I I loved Gould's Book of Fish, and I've forgotten who's written it. Um, But it's sitting here with an Australian. It's an Australian author, who's not (laughs) Peter Carey, and was all about early convicts who were sent onto this little island uh, as part of Tasmania, and it's from the point of view... Mm -hmm. of one of them who gets obsessed with staring at the scene drawing fish and that was a really fascinating book.
0: That's great. Really, I'm going to look at all those. Last question. Who's your greatest inspiration slash hero and why? I mean,
1: I think with these things you generally end up coming back to family because they are the people who've been most influential at the rock in bringing you up you know mm. there's every now and then there's a teacher or an artist in somewhere who you really feel moves but you have you haven't got that close enough connection with them usually for them to have really been influential um and, and i think my dad was my dad and uh, the family general, I was, i'm just thinking about like on my mum's side her mother was this amazing firebrand of a English teacher? I, I was at her funeral, uh, not very long ago, and oh, she'd been teaching in the same town in Wales for decades. Yeah. And I met so many of her ex students who were all like, "Oh, is it true that? Is it true that firebrand?" was actually an agent in the war. You know she was in Germany. So she and there were all these crazy stories about it. And she was uh, she was studying German in Cambridge before the war. Right. So she was in Germany at the outbreak of the war. Wow. And all of her students had got her built up <laughs> right. We hear that she was a mistress of T. S. Eliot. <laughs> Is that right? And that's said She did used to tell a story that yes she'd uh, slept in the same bed as T. S. Eliot, and then he said, "But I wasn't in it at the time." <laughs> <laughs> he stayed with us when he was doing some reading, so I, I slept in my friend's bed. And he had my bed for one night. Oh, <laughs> right. Okay. So yeah, <laughs> she was very my, on my dad's side again. His mother, who had the uh, was the, the the she started the first uh, women's health clinic in Britain. And she was uh, one of the first female doctors to graduate from Manchester University uh, and was always so interested in young people and what was happening. Like when I was a teenager, an early 20s at university, she'd get me in and she'd be like, okay, Simon, now don't lie to me. Don't think of me as an old person. I'm actually really interested in this. How do you feel like when you take ecstasy? <laughs> Come on! I'm not, I, no, I haven't. Yes, you have. Tell me, what does it feel like first? And she was just so interested in everything that was going on. Um, and then my dad was I'm, the same. He was—he yeah. was this. He had a pretty short attention span, or or a low boredom threshold, like me. I feel that's partly why I jump around so <laughs> many things and areas. I think it's partly hereditary that he went from you know being a doctor to an artist to a. Joiner to an activist, um, and was always fascinated in the world around him, and always willing to take risks. And I, I feel that was a great. Well, oh, would my wife and mom say that a great role model for me? It's certainly been how I've kind of lived my life a bit. Um, I remember at one point, he said to me and my brother, "He's like, okay, if you get any good grass at university, you bring the seeds back for me. And there are still thousands of people, I think, in Derbyshire and Manchester and Sheffield who are going through cancer treatment or who have had serious spinal injuries and things who are smoking the cuttings off this original huge plantation of weed that my right. dad like germinated in the air and covered all these seeds, planted them all out in the garden. Mum was terrified that the police were gonna come and yeah, yeah. arrest him. But there there were so many people who swore it was the only way they could eat when they were on chemotherapy. Yeah right. That some of his and this is while he was running the company for disabled people. So many people swore it was the only way they could get the back pain to stop who had serious spinal injuries. Surely you could get some sort of license for that, right? Well, not not twenty yeah. years ago. Oh, I think like now cool. there is more, but at the time mm. and, and the people that his company were employing to help um, these guys, who were some of the funniest people I'd met. They were so unself pitying. They, you know, like guys in wheelchair who'd had horrific injuries, and I was like a teenager, and and they'd be like, "You can bloody shape me and properly. It's my legs that are fucked. My arm's not going to fall off. Come on, <laughs> Simon. <laughs> I, I knew, oh, well, I've I've what, you not met a crip before <laughs> I'm a crip, it's all right. And, and they were really blunt, really funny, very... I mean, I, I, the first time I ever heard a piss on pity was like these guys and girls who worked with dads who were just like, no, we don't want anyone feeling sorry for us. We want to be out of institutionalized care. We want to be able to be in the workplace. We want to be able to pay people to help us because we can't use our hands and legs well enough. And so a lot of dad's thing with growing the dope was so that their helpers weren't put in an awkward position with them saying, this really helps me. Can you go and score? Mm. And then being, well, we don't want to break the law, but at the same time, we want to do what's best for you. So there, three answers in
0: one. But... <laughs> awesome. Simon, that that was great. I think we could have chatted for another hour or so. was the bar across the street. Uh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> what a great story. And, inspiring too, like music, traveling, family. You're making people happy. I hope so, and basically doing what
1: I want and making myself happy at the same time. There you go! It's a
0: good thing, isn't it? And that's a a win-win situation. Good luck with your band. Sounds like you've got a lot of energy and juices flowing for new material, so... Yeah, I think it's a good time. Yeah, all the best. Good luck. Thank you very
1: much, Craig. Thank you for having
0: me. I'm Bala from Bala Simple Chinese School. If you are a beginner, intermediate, advanced, looking for HSK study, business Chinese, or simply want to improve your everyday communication, I'm the teacher for you. Come and join me for a free trial class at Bala Simple Chinese School.